Bass Traps. Sound like a good band name, doesn't it? How are you, Danny? I'm good. I'm, I'm sitting down this time. I'm trying something new. I'm actually, because I've been standing for the last few podcasts because I, that was the way I managed to get my mic set up to sound good. Right. But I'm getting a bit sick of it. So I thought I'd try a different setup where I'm sitting down, but the desk is raised higher than it would be raised for sort of typing. What kind of seat do you have? It was a steel case something or other, wasn't it? Steel case gesture. It's the recommendation on the wire cutter at the moment. Have you heard of the wire cutter? No, what's that? The wire cutter is a review site which is now owned by the New York Times. It wasn't originally, but they bought it because it was successful. It has a sister review site called the Sweet Home as well, which I think think those two uh, sites are linked. But the wire cutter deals with sort of gadgets and technology and also office type equipment. And its sort of shtick is that it tells you the best in category for it, for all these different categories. So it will say, this is the best standing desk. I see. Or this is the best pair of wired headphones. Ah. They then go through their sort of review and they talk about their definition of best. It's generally a best quality for the best sort of value. And they'll often have as sort of runners up, they'll have a slightly cheaper one, but nearly as good, you know, a budget conscious best. And they'll have a somewhat more expensive, better, but maybe not better enough to be worth this much more money. But, you know, if you've got more money than cents, then you could buy this one. I see. Kind of idea. And they and it's a really good site. And I think for things that... Like, for things that I really, really care about, that I am interested in, maybe care about is the wrong word, because I, you know, I care about having a decent seat. But for things that I'm interested in, I kind of want to go through and research it and read up all about it and and do all that myself. But for things that I I just want the best thing and I don't want to put too much sort of time into researching it all, it's a really good site for just looking at what's the best one, can I afford it, okay, jobs are good. (laughs) I see. And that that was uh, your chair you found on that site? And this chair I found on that site. This was the one they marked as the best one. I was was surprised because I was kind of expecting the, the Aeron chairs, which we used to have hmm. uh, I've had them in the last two jobs I've I've had at both at Vita and in the last job I did in England and those are those are very popular and and very good chairs but this one just just beat it out the arms and the back in it well all of it really is very adjustable you can you can change the positions in a sort of very flexible way so that's why it's called a gesture because it's you know it's this very customizable kind of shape. I see. And I chose it over another one, which you're going to have to help yeah. me with the name of. This is one that I know you were looking at as well. Yes. So actually, um, I'm also right now in the market for a new chair, mm. and my wife has rather graciously said that seeing that much of my job, most of my job, all of my job is sitting down, um, especially because you know when you're producing music, there are some people who have standing desks for producing music, but generally. Uh, sitting down is just easier because you've got all that equipment. Mm. So my wife has said that because uh, I sit down a lot, I uh, don't need to worry about being too budget conscious with the purchase of a new chair for my Mm. uh, new setup here in Sweden. So I have narrowed it down to two options, one of which was the one that uh, you were considering before you got your steelcase one, and that is, it's uh, pronounced Hårg in Swedish, but that's H-A-G, so it's Western people generally say hag, unless you're Australian, in which case you say hag. <laughs> hag. 
<laughs> like a witch. Hag. Uh, anyway, uh, and it's called the Capisco. Ah, yes, that was it, Capisco. I yeah. remember, yeah. So is that a Swedish brand? I didn't even realize that. Uh, actually, it's a Norwegian brand. Oh, okay. However, it's, yeah, it's a member of a conglomerate, like a group of chair manufacturers from uh, Scandinavia called the Scandinavian Design Group or Scandinavian Group or something like that. Anyway, I... I thought also, firstly, well, you know, I've, I've, I've had a fantastic experience with the Herman Miller Aeron chairs, mm -hmm. but, you know, seeing as I'm in Scandinavia, you know, it'd sort of be nicer to support the local economy and buy an actual Scandinavian brand. <laughs> What's so funny? I just, that just seems like a really funny way of choosing a chair to me. <laughs> well, the thing is that when you get over a certain budget, my thinking was that, you know, the, it's after a certain... Uh, amount of money, the amount of quality that you gain between, for example, a Herman Miller something something or a Steelclay something or a, or any of these Scandinavian brands, mm. you know, it sort of flattens out after a, a certain budget. And Right. It's a bit like the uh, the first class we were talking about last time. You know, yeah. you pay a lot extra to get to business class and that's a big improvement. Right. And then you pay a lot extra again to get to first class. But by that point, the improvement has kind of leveled off a little bit. That's right. But the thing is that because a chair is such a, a, I mean, everybody's body shape is different. And mm. therefore, you know, if you found something that works, uh, then it's a good idea to stick to that. But that doesn't mean that uh, there won't be other things that work for you as well, regardless of the price. Sure. So where all things are equal, I thought, well, I may as well, you know, find something to support the local local businesses. So uh, that when you search for Scandinavian seat design or chair design or ergonomic Scandinavian chair, the Capisco pretty much always comes up. So yeah. just to describe it for people, uh, basically it's more like a stool than a chair. Uh, it's got a T-shaped back, so it doesn't have armrests, but the back of it has these uh, extrusions on the side where if you put your elbows back, you can sort of rest your, your arms there, which, uh, um, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, the defining feature is probably the seat pan itself which is actually sort of like, a, not like a horse saddle, but it's it's like a one of those old style bikes with the really huge fat wide seats, uh, saddles. It is, saddle is quite a good word actually. I mean, it's not it's not really like a, a bike saddle either. You'd have to look at it, but I can see where you're coming from with that choice of word. Like yeah. it's a, it's much smaller than a, a seat and you don't sort of sit in the seat as you would with a larger chair. You right. kind of sit around it. Yeah, and so basically the, it has a, a sort of an extrusion in the middle in between your legs and on either side the seat slopes down at a fairly sharp angle so you are it is a seat and your body weight is supported on a flat surface but your legs mm. sort of hang downwards and that's the idea behind the design that the the more open the angle you can make between your thighs and your upper body uh, the better the better it is for circulation. So right. I actually went to try one. Uh, have you tried one before? I have, yes. My my friend here has one. Because oh, right. it is... So an another fact about the Capisco uh, that you may not uh, have known, but I mentioned my standing desk before that I got the Jarvis Bamboo. Right. And Jarvis has some sort of arrangement with Hog, Hog, whatever. Hag. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they have got a, a bundle where you can pay a little bit extra on top of the price of your desk mm. and you end up getting the Capisco chair for quite substantially cheaper than the chair usually costs, I think. I can't oh, really? quite remember, but it was, 
it might even have been half the price of usual or maybe two thirds or something like that. It was, you know, it was a, a pretty good deal. And my friend here who got the same desk as me also got this chair bundled with it. Mm. I was considering doing that and ended up not doing that. And well, we can talk more about that in a bit. But anyway, that, that is, that's the reason I'm familiar with the chair because it's, it's actually offered as a bundle with this desk, which is, again, a very sort of ergonomic centric desk right so right. they they're offering it together as a bundle so what, what did you think of it when you tried it out i like it a lot it's comfortable to sit it's more comfortable than it looks yeah because it does look a bit funny and it looks like it wouldn't properly support you but i found it to be very comfortable to sit in and because of the way that your legs sort of hang down a little bit that i, I found that actually encouraged me to lean forward a little bit mm. and i think when I was sitting on it for a short period of time, I found that that encouraged me to sit with better posture. Right. And one of the reasons I didn't go for it in the end is because I'm not sure whether that would still apply if I'm sitting on it for many hours, which I do for work, obviously. Right. Uh, the, the fact that it, the back, uh, which you described earlier as having that T-shape, it only goes up about halfway up your back. Right. It's only meant to support your lower back. And... Uh, I have read, you know, some people on the internet said that that actually can encourage slouching mm. if you sit at it for a long time because you don't you don't have the proper back there to support you, and that's one of the reasons I went for this chair because it's got a very it's got a very substantial back and uh, and it's very supportive mm. in the back. But the one of the good things about the Capisco, and maybe one of the reasons it's bundled with this adjustable desk, is that it's very easy to switch from sitting to standing. Right. Which is, I think we said before when we were talking about standing desks, but that is what you're supposed to do. The idea with a standing desk is not really that you should be standing all day. Mm. It's the, the ideal use use of it is that you should stand for a little while and then sit for a little while and move around and that sort of changing your posture and changing your body's position is good mm. and i think that the capisco does sort of encourage that because it's because because again the way that you, it's shaped and the way that your legs are sort of hang down you're being supported but you're almost halfway towards standing anyway when you're sitting down mm. right right so i did like that and i thought if i was doing the work similar work to what I used to do in Japan where I was leading a team so I had to move around quite like I would be sitting for some period of time programming but then I would also have to spend quite a lot of time just suddenly getting up and fixing somebody else's git issues or going over to talk to somebody about some piece of design or going over to take a cable to the back room <laughs> um, you know i had to do quite a lot of sitting and standing and switching between these two modes mm. and i think for that sort of work the capisco is, is actually kind of ideal because it's very sort of feels very flexible in that sense right and that was the the, the objective behind the design it, it basically that uh, the problem is not sitting but the problem is remaining stationary in the one position and so if you have a seat that encourages you to move and shift your weight a bit, and uh, there's some pretty humorous marketing images of the Capisco with with a lady sitting on it in some fairly creative positions that just would never ever happen in any workplace ever. <laughs> the, the idea is just that you're constantly moving. So 
Yeah, I was look. I specifically saw that one and thought that'd be really good for me because I pretty much am always sitting up straight in a seat because I've got to be leaning forward over MIDI keyboards or playing a bass. And when you play a bass, you know you really want you don't want arms. You want to have uh, your you right. You want freedom. Yeah. For you. That's right, because yeah. the bass hangs over your legs, so you want to have um, uh, you don't want the arms to get in the way, and right. basically mo moving around a fair amount. Now, the one thing about the Aeron chair, and also uh, similarly about the other, the option number two that I've narrowed it down to, which I'll get to in a moment, is that they get around that issue of circulation by basically making you lean back a fair amount, so you're kind of almost reclining. So the angle between your thighs and your upper body is kept very um, broad just because you're, you're leaning back quite a lot. Right. And that makes it really, really comfortable to sit in those chairs, Aeron chair and, and this other one that I'll mention, mm. uh, for a long time because it, it is, you, there's no stress on your shoulders, or on your neck or on, uh, uh, on your lower back keeping your upper back upright because you're more or less lying in the seat. Mm. And that's just really, really comfortable if you are kind of like your job, if you're basically sitting in the one place looking forward, moving your fingers. That is a good definition of my job, sitting in one place, looking forward, moving my fingers. Yes, that's all programmers do, really. And then magic happens, of course, as we know. Um, bugless magic. No. Anyway, the thing about the Capisco <laughs> was that because it's kind of like a stool, and I find that with, even with the Aeron chair, I tend to shove my bum as far back as it will go into the seat. So I'm kind of sitting upright. And because they 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 make you stretch out, you got to put your bum right into the back of the seat right. to actually sit upright. Right. So that's all of these are the reasons why I thought, well, maybe I should go try one of these Capisco chairs because maybe it might work well for me rolling around, going to this MIDI keyboard, going to that synthesizer, grabbing my bass, playing this in, you know, adjusting a volume there on the interface, whatever. So... Yeah, I went to try it out, and um, as you said, surprisingly comfortable. Did you try the one, because they have two options for the cushioning on the bottom seat. They've got one with a minimal amount of cushioning in the middle, and then just the bare plastic surrounding it. But they have another option where the entire seat uh, saddle bit is cushioned, much more like a traditional chair, and it's much more sort of thick cushioning. There's actually three models. There's the oh, okay. there's the original Capisco, which is the one that you just described there. This, the second one you described, where it's a it's a thick cushion, and it, it looks just like a regular seat, except it's shaped like a saddle. Oh, is that the original? I didn't realize. I thought the original was the one with the the exposed plastic. No, the after according to the the showroom person that I spoke to, they had some issues with the uh, recyclability or the disposability of the the sponge material in the original Capisco. So they created an updated version called the Capisco Pulse. Right. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. P-U-L-S. Yes. And that one is made of, um, I don't know, polypropylene or some kind of ABS plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has just in the middle, it has this uh, cushioned pad in the middle, but the sides of it are bare plastic right. and the back is also bare plastic. Yeah. 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 That's the, the, the current model. Then there's a third model, which is basically the same as that the Pulse, except there's like an upholstered cushion over the whole plastic pan. So it's sort of, if you find that you think you might want more cushioning, mm. then um, uh, that's the one to go for. And you can actually buy that cushion separately if you wanted to, to attach it yourself to the plastic. One. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I tried all three. Oh, okay. And amazingly and rather worryingly, 
the, uh, the the plastic one, the basic one with just the pad in the middle, was actually the most comfortable. I don't think that's worrying. I, I yeah, I I felt well. I've only tried that one. That's the only one. I've that's the one that is offered with this desk. Right. That's the one that my friend has, and I was slightly surprised when I saw they offered a cushion version because it seemed like you would lose some of what you get with that. Like the 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 way that version is contoured is very nice. Yeah. That's exactly what I felt. And uh, I said worryingly because um, the just with that pad in the middle, my concern is just if I'm sitting on that for like two or three hours, is that little pad going to be enough? Is, it, is, my, you know, is my bum going to get sore? And am, am I going right. to wish for the, the more padded version? So the, the really thick version, the original Capisco, mm-hmm. and the upholstered Capisco Pulse uh, recent version, mm. both of those, the, the issue is just that your legs don't, sort of fall off the edges so comfortably on those. Right, Because yeah. with the plastic one, there's obviously more, there's more of a space and the contour is much more apparent with those ones. And so your legs sort of comfortably drop off the way that the chair's designed to allow for. But with the upholstered cushion versions, it feels just like a funny seat, whereas the, whereas the pulse feels like it's actually molded to your legs as they're dropping off. Right. Yeah, so that was the first option that I narrowed down to. And I th- I'm thinking now... Once I tell you about the second option, why I'm uh, why I liked it, I'm thinking now that actually the Capisco is going to be the chair for me. But the other option, so on the way out of the uh, Horg showroom, there was a Herman Miller showroom. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in to have a look, and of course they have the Aerons and they have the new Aerons and they have all of the other different uh, amazing chairs that Herman Miller makes. And then uh, as I was trying out the the chairs with the assistance of a very nice salesperson. He said, oh, you may want to try this one over here too. This is called the Setu, S-E-T-U. And this is basically a controlless, non-adjustable version of the Aeron, essentially. Hmm. It's created by a really fantastic four-person design team in uh, Germany. And the, the idea is that the back of the seat flexes very, very, very nicely. And it's made of that same kind of elastomer mesh material that the Aeron is made of Mm. and it's so well designed that you actually don't really it fit me perfectly and I didn't really need to do any adjustments like that you can't with this you can't adjust the back angle you can't adjust the lateral position of the not lateral the forward backward position of the seat pan right all you can do is adjust the height you can't even I think you can lock it to stop it from from going oh actually maybe I don't think you can even do that all you can do is adjust the height right but everything else is basically what you see is what you get. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I can see that it's a much more sort of defined. And the arms as well are just part of the shape of the frame of the chair. Yeah. Uh, so I tried the version without the arms, which is what I'd be looking to get. I see. And let me tell you, Danny, this thing is really comfortable. It's like really comfortable. <laughs> and the if you've tried an Aeron chair before, it feels exactly like that, except it's just so simple. You know, the design is so perfectly... Uh, encapsulated in that in in its shape and its form that mm. it doesn't need any adjustment and you don't feel the need to tighten up the you know the flex of the back or to uh, you know to, to angle the front forward or anything it just is absolutely perfect as it is mm. it is also extremely expensive like extremely expensive well not it's not as expensive as an aeron but then when you think that it actually doesn't have any moving parts except for the piston right it's really expensive and the, one of the other things that's um, the reason I'm thinking of the Capisco now is uh, a like the the Aeron chair with the Setu, 
you feel like when you get into it, you really just don't want to get out. Yes. And I imagine that it may be a little bit uncomfortable to sit up in it because it's, it's so relaxing to sit back in. Yeah. So if I was like a digital artist or a programmer or the kind of person that only really essentially needs to sort of be concentrating forward with my arms in a comfortable position most of the time, uh, it, it would be, it's, it's ideal, it's perfect. However, because I need to rotate and I need to get up and I need to play on this keyboard here and I need to touch that synthesizer over there and I need to lean forward to, you know, put some stuff into uh, my beautiful tracker DAW, which is a topic for another podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I just sort of felt that it actually would be kind of tiring to lean forward in this thing because it's, it's so perfectly designed to make you sit back. So that was the first reason. The second reason that I'm thinking the Pisco might be better is that the Setu, uh, for better or for worse, Mostly for better, but in my case for worse, mm-hmm. it actually takes five weeks to uh, to deliver it because right. they actually make it to order, which is yeah, yeah. brilliant. That's normally I would love that, right? But you need a chair. <laughs> yeah, I need a chair right now. I'm sitting on this uh, this IKEA children's desk chair <laughs> that was right. that was here at this apartment, and it's it's not very comfortable. So I really need a chair now, and uh, yeah. So I'm now. Um, very, very, very strongly considering the uh, the Capisco Pulse, the, the standard, right. the standard version. Well, I can tell you that, for what it's worth, I actually slightly regret not getting the Capisco Pulse. Really, this chair is a, a very good chair, and it's extremely comfortable. I'm sitting in it now and in, enjoying it, but there are a couple of issues. Number one. When I, they, I think they make this one to order as well. And when I ordered it, I had the choice of rollers between ones intended for carpet and ones intended for, you know, wooden flooring. Right. And my apartment here is carpeted, so I chose the carpeted ones. But even with those, I find that it moves very, it's very difficult to move it oh. across my floor. And it's extremely heavy. The frame is the the bottom part of the frame is metal. I can't remember what metal, but it's it feels very heavy. Mm. And so, if I am just sitting in one place and typing, it's fine. But the moment I want to move, I really do have to like push very hard against mm. my desk in order to push the chair out from the desk or whatever. Or if I'm just sort of moving around my room, I'm, I'm, I want to remain sitting but just slide over to to reach a book or something. Mm. It's a lot of effort. And even these, and you don't realize how, or I, you know, I've never realized how much I make small adjustments to the position of my chair mm. while I'm working. Right. Until those adjustments become very difficult to do, which I do find with this chair. So I'm not sure if that's a problem with, if, because my carpet's too thick or whether there was a mistake and they accidentally put the, the, f- the ones intended for wooden flooring instead of the carpeted wheels, or if that's just a fundamental part of this chair. But that's number one thing. And the other thing is exactly what you just described with the Aeron, that I find once I've sat down in this chair, it is a great effort to stand up again. Right. And that's something that I, I definitely think with the Capisco Pulse is, is not the case. Like, that's one of the nice things with that. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that the Capisco Pulse is much cheaper than... I mean, this chair is quite expensive. The Capisco Pulse is much cheaper and was even cheaper when bundled with the desk. Mm. So even if I decided to get it now, 
I would not get it for that bundled price. So I kind of think I should have just got that and tried that one out first. And if if I felt like I wasn't being supported enough and I wanted a more substantial chair to support my back, then I could have got this one later. But I think I did it the wrong way around. Mm. So I'm not like, I don't regret it that badly. I'm happy with this chair and it's good. But I think that the Capisco Pulse is also very good. Mm. And I may end up getting one despite already having this chair at some point. Obviously, rolling on the thick carpet, that's not going to be any easier with the Capisco, but at least... Well, it's a lighter chair. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, there's that true, of course. But the other thing is that you're, you're sitting on the Capisco, you sit up upright rather than sitting like reclining backwards so right uh, to get up is just sort of basically you you just lean forward and you're already standing more or less right right exactly yeah so but uh, okay so here's the most important question what color well red of course oh okay (laughs) red is red is the one that my friend has i i was going to get the white and black the one with the white plastic and the black yeah that's that's very classy unfortunately uh Mm. i've uh Seem to have accumulated all black stuff from IKEA for my uh, for, for my uh, studio here. So uh, I have a behind me. I have like a I got a from IKEA a little. It's like a large footstool for a sofa where you lift the cushion off and there's some storage underneath. Mm. So I put that behind me. That's the nice red color, but everything else in the room is black. So I did see on some somewhere somebody had a a black version of the pulse, the plastic pulse. But the uh, the seat cushion in the middle was red, and that was really classy. Oh wow! Or I think there's a, the red version with the black cushion looks really great too. But in any case, having the different colored cushion, I think, uh, is the way to go. Yeah, yeah, look, it gives it a, a bit of a highlight. That's the one concern that I have is just that cushion because the fully upholstered original Capisco and the reinforced upholstered plastic Pulse, uh, both of them weren't as comfortable as the regular plastic one. But right. the seat pad itself is quite narrow. It's really clever because if you sit down, if you're sitting down and listening to this right now, if you pay attention to your bottom, you'll feel that your, what bone is it? Is it your, your coccyx or your sternum? Or there's, there's like bones. No, your sternum is in your chest. Oh, whoops. I think your coccyx might be right. Yeah, <laughs> not sternum. There's two of them anyway. <laughs> there's two of them inside your butt. And okay. they're, they're kind of located more to the, the middle of your of your your bum, mm. uh, those I guess would be the probably your thigh bones, I suppose. On and the the cool thing about the um, the Capisco seat pad is that it supports you just there, so you actually it feels very soft. Right, it feels very comfortable, but actually, right, it, only about half of it is cushioned, and the rest of it is is um, hard solid plastic. Right, it's cushioned where it counts. Ex- exactly, but I'm just. A little bit concerned about how the Capisco would be after, um, you know, after sort of three or four hours of sitting. Well, maybe not that long, but two or three hours of sitting in the same position. But uh, yeah, so if you are listening to this and you own a Capisco Pulse, please let us know. Let Alex know. Specifically, how comfortable have you been after listening to our podcast for <laughs> however many minutes we've been going? Yes. At, at this rate, we haven't even got to follow up yet, and we've already been going for half an hour. So at this rate, you could be sitting on the Capisco chair for two to three hours listening. To yeah. this. See, Danny, you ruined my perfect segue there. I was going to say, and speaking of getting in touch with us, <laughs> all right, follow up. I, I have some driving follow up. Uh oh. We open this podcast in incredible style with my 
trying and failing to get a driving license. Right. And that was the first two episodes. Yep. And then all went quiet for a little while. <laughs> but I can tell you that after much trial and tribulation, as of two weeks ago, in fact, we recorded the last podcast early. We recorded it the weekend, whereas usually we would record on Wednesday. That Wednesday, when we would usually record, I got my driving license. Congratulations. So I am now licensed to drive in the state of California. So uh, everybody in California stay off the roads, I think. Is, is that... that is, indeed. <laughs> There'll be a guy driving <laughs> on the wrong side of the road with his window down <laughs> shouting at you in uh, some some posh accent telling you to get over, get over to the other side. Yep, so that's good. Nice to finally have that sorted. Although since getting my license, I haven't driven once. So <laughs> that's the way we'll it goes. see how that goes. And speaking, so speaking of driving, we actually got quite a lot of follow-up about what we were talking about last episode with the UK number plates. Oh, yeah. And looking for file extensions and, and all of that. Firstly, it was, I, I had forgotten this about number plates, but there's actually... I was describing the way that they're formed of a letter and then some numbers and then three letters. That system is actually quite well defined. Mm. And uh, I was looking uh, in the past couple of weeks, I was looking at the Wikipedia page for UK driving uh, identification numbers. And the first two letters that they have there, those represent the area. They're like an area code to say where you bought the car. I see. And then the numbers are the year that the car was manufactured or the or registered or something. I think manufactured. Right. So you can tell just by looking at a number plate where the car is from and and how old it is. I see. And then the final three letters are random. Although they're missing they don't have I, Q or Z. I see. Uh, oh no, sorry, they don't have I and Q. They might have Z. Okay. So they couldn't have had the file extension that you suggested of IFF oh, because no. they don't have an I. Actually, without I, that that cuts out a lot of them because you can't have GIF, you can't have, uh, let's see, yeah, well, there's a lot, there's AIF, ICO. There's TIFF. Yeah. <laughs> TIFF. Uh, yeah. They're, now they're all escaping me. Riff. You, did you say you can have P? Uh, you can have P. You can't have I or Q. I or Q, I see. No, no zip. You've got to have zip. There's no zip. No zip. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I've never seen a zip. That's well true. So, so and and funny enough, some of the uh, extensions we said then, uh, like AIF and RIF, the Microsoft uh, Resource Icons format, those I discovered over the past couple of weeks. Those are actually based on IFF. Oh. So the the AIFF uh, audio file format that I'm sure you use all the time in your line of work mm. and that we use to send our recordings to each other when we're making this podcast, that is an audio-specific version of the IFF container format. So it lives on. Your nostalgic Amiga file format that you brought up last week lives on in something that you use every day. Actually, I use uh, WAV. I'm not really sure why I do that. You know, it's all the same, really, WAV and mm. AIFFF. But uh, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's good to know you got you know you got to keep the faith, got to keep the flame burning. Yeah, <laughs> and we had some reports of file extensions that people saw or that people have seen on on UK streets. The most interesting of which I thought, at least, is WAD W A D, which is the container format for Doom resources. You know the game <laughs> Doom. 
all the all the textures and maps and and everything that is used in Doom are stored in a WAD file. Wow. So somebody saw one of those, and that, I thought that whoever was saw good. that that person is a champion. If you're listening, you're a champion <laughs> to, know, to know WAD file format. In uh, Stockholm here, I've been on the lookout, mm. and mysteriously, there are extremely few number plates with phone. They, they have also three letters here, right? But I, I've seen almost none mm. that have uh, file name uh, the same as file name extensions, and I do know that um, Sweden is uh, the, the IT. We call it a revolution, but the, the, basically the, the coming of uh, personal computers into the average person's home mm. happened very early here compared to some other countries. Right. And um, I think it was to do with a, a government incentive to sort of modernize the uh, informa information technology sector and, and make it more accessible to all people. So I, I kind of wonder perhaps whether, because relatively speaking, the, the country is, uh, I don't know, more familiar with IT kind of things or whatever, maybe, maybe not, maybe that's completely wrong, uh, probably completely wrong, but anyway... I <laughs> I have no reason because because of because they're more familiar with IT kind of things. What therefore maybe when they create these systems for registering cars and their number plates, yeah, they they think to themselves, should we allow PNG and GIF and JPG and you know, <laughs> WAV and uh, PDF? It and seems I, it seems like a bit of an obscure thing to purposefully ban. I wonder whether the, I mean they have three letters. But I wonder whether those three letters, as in the UK system, are random or whether they are like the first couple of letters in the UK system where they actually mean something. Because if they're less random, then it would make sense that you, you, you get less, you get fewer extensions. Yeah, it could be that. It could be that. Yeah, I don't know. That was just a, a really silly, ridiculous, <laughs> highly implausible uh, hypothesis of why it is that there's so few number plates that actually have uh, meaningful letter combinations. But... The, it is true that this, com this country, IT in this country, seems to f sort of flow a lot more smoothly than in other countries. One, one thing that I've found is that the uh, speed of internet connections for the home right. yeah. is incredible. And I was uh, chatting with uh, one of my good friends here, and he said, uh, the reason that you find that is that there's actually a law that requires IT companies and uh, internet connection vendors in this country if they advertise a certain speed mm. they actually have to provide that speed oh so they can't just advertise the sort of peak maximum speed you might get if nobody else is on the internet exactly so yeah it was amazing so i, I with my the internet uh, service provider that i have here at my home here um, i signed up for the 250 megabits per second is that right? Right. I only know the number and I don't know the unit. Is that is that the right unit? Yeah, the, it's a bit confusing because some places talk about megabits. Okay. And some places talk about megabytes and one megabyte is eight times as big as one megabit. What would be more likely if it's 250? That would be megabytes, I suppose. No, 250 megabytes per second, that can't be right. That's, well, it's possible, but I, I at least, and again, we've been talking about advertising and so forth, but... Usually, and at least here, ISPs tend to prefer to express things in megabits because all the numbers are bigger. I see. Anyway, I was shocked, shocked and startled and delighted to find that when I did, uh, you know, speedtest.net or whatever it is mm. to uh, test the speed of my connection, it was 249. Wow. Which is amazing because wow. in previous experience, like when you get sort of 100 MBPS, whatever it is, right. uh, you know, you're lucky to get sort of 20 or 30 when you do one of those speed tests. Mm. 
and in Japan, where again, relatively, you know, the IT industry is uh, pretty solid. Right. Uh, also, there as well, you know, it says 100 on the on the box, but <laughs> when you actually uh, try the speed test, it's you know, sort of 20 or 30 or 40, which is usable. Right. For you know the stuff that I do, because mm. I don't do any hardcore online gaming. So yeah, when I when I tried this 250, uh Maybe 250 might not be enough because, you know, previously if I've had, when I've had 250 connections, it's sort of like uh, 80 or 90. Mm. Maybe it'll be okay, you know. And then I try it and it's 249. And it's always about 249 or 250. Right. That's amazing. Like, how do they even do that? Even like right, yeah. right now, I'm talking to you. It's it, right now, it's uh, a Saturday evening at nine o'clock in the evening. Mm. And uh, this connection has been fantastic. Uh, fast and stable and yeah so uh one up for sweden there very good yeah do we have any other follow-up uh just a, a little bit so uh, particularly perspicacious listeners might have noticed a small flaw in my description of the trebuchet at warwick castle where i said that it can shoot its ammo i can't remember what the the correct word for that is again but it's ballast at 150 miles per Per hour, mm. and it can shoot it up to three hundred miles. Wow! And that that is patently ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed this also when I was listening back to the the podcast during editing, and I did get some feedback from listeners. But if if it could actually do that, firstly, I think that's about half the length of England. <laughs> so, so sieges seem like a bit of a pointless endeavor. <laughs> it's like an ICBM, isn't it, for the medieval era? Right. And secondly, if if you do the very complicated maths, 150 miles an hour for 300 miles means that the, the rocks and whatever they're shooting are in the air for two hours. Which <laughs> 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 is amazing. Now, the, the root cause of this mistake, I think, is England's constant ridiculous complications when it comes to measurements because as most of the rest of the world england has moved to the metric system sort of Mm. but not completely so whereas america is still all imperial units and you know i come over here as an english person like oh you're still using fahrenheit oh you're still using inches this is so old-fashioned and and rubbish right but the truth is i can't really criticize them because in england we have this awful mishmash where we use grams to measure the amount of meat in a supermarket for example Mm. you buy 500 grams of mince Mm. but we use stone to measure the weight of people one stone is 14 pounds and we still we still tend to talk about people's weight in stone And we use meters and centimeters to describe, for example, the length of this desk I'm sitting at, we would say is probably one and a half, two meters. Right. But we use miles to express the distance that you would drive in a car, the sort of longer distances. So it's very complicated. And so I tried to look them up. I couldn't find the actual values. But I think what I should have said is the trebuchet can fire at 150 miles an hour for up to 300 meters. Yeah, that sounds a bit more plausible, doesn't it? That's, that does sound a bit more plausible. And they actually shot it while we were at Warwick Castle. Oh, wow. 
and were able to go and pick up the stone that they had shot, which, had it been 300 miles, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> would, would have been a very long journey. So the other thing I found out while I was uh, trying to look up the numbers for how, how far it can shoot and how fast, is that that trebuchet at Warwick Castle is the largest functioning trebuchet in the world. It's based on a design uh, at another castle in Denmark, mm. but they made it bigger. And so it is actually the, the absolute largest in the world that is currently in active use wow. uh, of any trebuchet. So it's quite an amazing thing to go and see, really. So it must have made an amazing sound when, because you heard it as well when, when it was fired? Yes, although we're a little bit, there was a bit of a distance, so okay. we couldn't, yeah, we couldn't hear that sound. But, mm. but yeah, yeah. Uh, although once, apparently, they, they've had it going for quite a few, I think maybe nine years or something now. And it's a, you know, it's a great attraction. I think it's really good. But once they shot, I'm not sure if they were actually purposefully shooting a flaming ball like that they'd set on fire, mm. or if there were just sparks because something rubbed against something and, and caused a spark. Oh, wow. But for whatever reason, they were doing the same display, and a spark came out from the, from the ball, and it landed on this thatched roof at one of the, you know, they've got these old buildings in, on the grounds, it landed on this thatched roof and this whole building went up in flames. Wow. And they had to evacuate, evacuate the castle. I mean, they had all these tourists standing watching the show and suddenly there's this huge conflagration. This building is set on fire and they did actually have to evacuate. It was quite serious. That was a bit of a botch up, isn't it? Well, <laughs> yeah, you could say that, yeah, yeah. But they're still doing it, so that's good. Just uh, coming back to your uh, mentioning um, units, imperial and metric units. In Australia, it's interesting that the older generation will still use imperial units on occasion, but by and large, it's mostly metric. Right. However, one interesting remnant of the imperial system is idiomatic expression. Idiomatic expression is always in imperial units. Right. So you'd never say something, oh, that's, that's Ks away. You'd say it's miles away. It's miles away, yeah, that's true. I think that probably applies across the, the whole of the English-speaking world, essentially. Right, and also... Um, uh, yeah, so just in general spoken expression, it's. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of a few other examples, like uh, inch by inch. You also talk about inching towards something, yeah, inch by inch. Yeah, yeah. inching towards something, or um, no, I can't think of any other good examples right now, but yeah. That way, well, that weighs a ton, I suppose, oh, could yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. In fact, do we, we tend to say that weighs a ton, and then when we really want to exaggerate something, we say that weighs a metric ton, because <laughs> I think those are heavier. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting that in, you know, whether in uh, five or six generations' time, whether uh, people are still using those old imperial references. Wasn't the, a foot is the distance from your elbow to the top of a bent wrist of King something or other. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and an inch, right. I think, is that if you, if you curl your pointer finger... Yeah, the inch is the the distance from the two knuckles, the two um, joints on your on your pointer finger, and so yeah, I mean, like a pound must be like the I don't know, like the the weight of the a pound is the weight of a pound of silver. Oh, okay, I was going to say it's like the weight of the the, the king's meal on a Thursday afternoon or something. Or I, right. I don't know. <laughs> is that right? Or have I got it the wrong way around? The British pound, I think it might be the other way around. Actually, the original value of one British pound sterling hmm. was the a pound's weight worth of silver what unit conversion app do you use danny do you use one 
I use so I use a calculator app called PCalc as oh, my calculator, right? And that has unit conversion in it. Cool. It's quite expensive for a calculator app. Mm. It's I think it's like ten dollars or something, uh, which you know on the App Store is is very expensive, but it's it's the best calculator app I think. So that's what I use. So that's a scientific calculator as well. Yep. Yeah, mm. it can do both. It's by a guy called James Thompson who made this app pcalc for the mac in like the system seven days i think okay and he's he's scottish but his his thing one of his things is that he tries to be the first to release an app on anything <laughs> apple always and it's always this calculator app so when the apple tv came out he released pcalc for the apple tv and it's ridiculous. Like a calculator app on your television. Like nobody needs that. But he's always, he tries to sort of always be the first one to sort of get something out on the app store. And it's always the same calculator app. Oh, that's interesting. For a long time, I've sworn by a really great unit conversion app called Vert, V-E-R-T. Mm. And uh, you can check that out at uh, a company's called Kaluma, which is C-A-L-U-M-A-A.com. Mm -hmm. And um, Vert is, I've used it uh, for a long time and it's fantastic. The setting it up takes a little bit of time because you basically, they throw you in the deep end with every unit that you could possibly want. Right. Uh, but you can actually favorite units that you use more often. Mm -hmm. And the currency conversion tool is fantastic because if you look at a screenshot, it, you'll see there's basically two sliding columns on the left and on the right. Mm -hmm. And down the bottom, you have a calculator. And so you type in the number that you want, and then you slide uh, that put inputs a number onto the left column. And on the right column, you basically slide in between the different uh, units to find the one that you want. Mm -hmm. So it's really great for uh, if, if you ever need to see multiple units at the same time, mm -hmm. which is something that a lot of other unit conversion apps can't do, because mm -hmm. it's basically from this unit to that unit. Right. This one works really well, and that's really good for currency. Mm -hmm. And they've got the graph as well for currency. I can see I'm looking at the site now. Yeah. Uh, so you can type in sort of, you know, for example, uh, 300 US dollars. Mm. And then on the, the right-hand column, you know, you'll be able to just see at a glance, oh, that's this many Japanese yen or that's just this many Swedish crowns or this many uh, Australian dollars or mm. this many euros or whatever, all at the one glance. And mm. especially for me now, I've just come to Sweden. As I'm getting used to the value here, you know, basically how much, when I see something is, you know, for example, 800 crowns, mm -hmm. approximately how much is that? You know, I can see um, US dollars and I can see Australian dollars and Japanese yen all in the one glance, which makes it really mm -hmm. easy to, to get a good idea for whether something is cheap or expensive. Oh, that looks useful. Yeah, yeah. that looks good. I, use, I actually use a different app for currency conversions than I do for unit conversions. Oh, okay. Yeah. This, um, I use the xe.com oh, yeah. app, basically, because I always used to use that website back you know, before the days of smartphones and things. Right, and right. so when the iPhone came out and there was an app, I just continued using that. But I'm not a huge fan of it, to be honest. Mm. I just use it because it's what I've got. Mm. Vert having a calculator down the bottom. Mm. Uh, there's been so many times that you wouldn't really think that it would be that useful, but there's been so many times when, you know, I've done a, a currency conversion right here in the app, but then I need to sort of add on tax or I need to Oh, if I buy this extra, then it adds on this much, and I can just do it right there and then see the totals all update in all the different currencies. So uh, definitely check uh, Vert out if you're after a, a, a good 
unit conversion app. And of course, they have all of the different um, imperial and metric measurements in there as well. Mm -hmm. Just be warned that when you first get it, basically everything is open when you first get it. So uh, it, it is a little bit intimidating because there's like all of these different units. And so you need to sort of spend 10 minutes just going through and picking the ones that you're most likely to use. Right. Not only the units, but also the the types of conversions that you're most likely to use. Right. It's a good idea just to spend some time setting it up. But yeah, highly recommended. Yeah. Oh, I might check that out. It looks good. Yeah, it looks like nice, nice, cleaner design than the, the XE app that I'm using. Yeah, XE is great on the web. And uh, obviously, it's got a bit of a, I guess we can say it's a bit of a, a legendary status. It's been around for a long time and everybody knows about it. And the app is highly functional. But yeah, this having currency conversion in this format with the calculator there and with all the currencies available that I want to see at one at one point, just there's no competition really. I, I really uh, really like that. Did you see any of the? I know you, it it wasn't anywhere near you, but did you see any of the photos and things of the recent eclipse? No, I, uh, yes, I did. I didn't see the eclipse itself, of course, because I'm course. in Scandinavia, but. Uh, uh, I did see some pictures. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it was. Unfortunately, where I am was a bit too far south to see the the total eclipse mm. on the on the west because it went right through America, right west west to east. And on the west side, it was a bit further north. It was about midway through Oregon, I think. Mm. And so, where I am in in Northern California, there was a you know I think it covered like seventy seventy five percent. Or something. So it was a fairly substantial partial eclipse, mm. but we didn't get to see the total eclipse. But it was still, still cool, still very interesting. Mm. Uh, and we still had the glasses, you know, the special glasses you have to have. Yeah. Uh, we still had those left over from the eclipse in two thousand and nine that happened in Japan. Right. <laughs> so we used we used those to look at it. I think I've only ever, in memory, I've only ever experienced an eclipse. Once, I think, in Australia when I was very small. Mm. What happens to the light? Does it sort of, as, as the, the moon crosses over the sun, mm. does the light sort of, does it fade down as if it's going to twilight in the evening? Or what colour do things become? It is that sort of a feeling. So I think in the, you know, in the path of totality, it goes, it really does go very dark for an instant. Mm. Uh, but where we were, it didn't get that dark. And because you're sort of standing there watching it, and it's quite, you know, it takes a couple of hours to cross the entire sun. Mm. Uh, and it's a very gradual thing. So you almost don't notice because your eyes are constantly adjusting to the light level. So it doesn't feel like it's getting that dark. I see. The eclipse took place at about 10, 15. Right. Where we are on the West Coast. And so it was already, the sun was already out and it was quite bright. And at its most substantial, when it was covering about 75% or, or whatever, it was it felt like about kind of six in the evening, mm. sort of light level. So it was it was evening time. I see. And it was also more than the light, the change in temperature was more substantial. Like oh. it did feel quite cool. Interesting. The other interesting thing to see was that we where I was looking, there were quite a lot of trees around. And the light is shining through the trees, right? Mm. Those, the little gaps in the leaves through which the light shines acted as kind of like a peephole camera. So the light would shine through them. And as the moon crossed, it started forming these crescent shapes. Wow. And if you looked at the floor, you had this sort of pattern of crescent shapes. Wow. And then as the moon came across, the crescent slowly flipped. 
because the moon, obviously the moon was, was going through uh, and the, the crescent of the sun was changing from being on the bottom half around to the top. That is, that is really cool. So yeah, it was, it was really cool to see. Uh, you could see it on the leaves. And then also when I went back inside and there were some blinds in the building I was in, mm. you could sort of see these mini crescents going across the chair that wow. they were sort of shining on. So that was, that was really interesting. That is really cool. There, there were a couple of other things that I found quite interesting about the eclipse. I mean, the eclipse itself was obviously amazing and there's lots of photos and, and things that you can look at for that. But I, because of where I was, I didn't get to fully appreciate that side of it because mm. it wasn't a total eclipse where I was. Mm. But I thought it was very interesting seeing how infrastructure was affected. And there were sort of two uh, examples of this. The one was, on the day of the eclipse, if you looked at Google Maps with the traffic overlay on, you could see the path of totality because you could see all the congested roads, the, the congested roads, the congested freeways across the entire of America. It was forming this sort of red line <laughs> along the path of, of where the moon goes. <laughs> it's just really interesting to see. Like you could literally see it just because of all these people stuck in traffic, either on their way to go and see it or on their way back having seen it. So that was <laughs> amazing. Wow. And another thing that I saw was an account that I follow on Twitter called Swift on Security, yep. which is quite a well-known, I'm not even sure if it's fair to call it a parody account. The idea of this account is that it's Taylor Swift, the singer, right. but she's an expert in computer security and she's <laughs> tweeting about okay. the latest sort of password leaks and, and advice for how to... So I think the person who runs the account actually works as a security admin for some enterprise. Okay. He has to right. man administer a large collection of Windows machines. So anyway, she's obviously on a, a mailing list about outages in service for networks and mobile phones and things like that. Hmm. And an email came to that service from somebody who obviously works in managing these networks. And they were saying that all the different cellular networks, you know, T-Mobile and AT&T and all these, were going to be deploying mobile cell towers and signal boosters all along the path of totality because they knew that tons of people would be there and be wanting to use their mobile phones. And usually, I mean, because this is just a line decided by astronomy, <laughs> across the US. Right. So some of the places might be, you know, places that often get a lot of people, but other places that the moon passed, you know, were very obscure places in the middle of nowhere that usually probably wouldn't get any signal at all. Right. And so I thought it was quite interesting to see in the lead up to the eclipse how these different things that you don't usually think about, you kind of take it for granted that there is cell service, for example. But there, in the background, there's all these people sort of planning ahead and mm. trying to figure out what to do because they, they can see that there is going to be a problem if they just carry on as normal and let people just <laughs> sort of gather in these spots that usually don't receive any cell signal. So I thought that was all quite interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. That's uh, it's a, it's a reality of modern the modern age, really, the modern era with uh, mobile technology. Listening to your uh, what you were saying just there, I'm reminded of the uh, Pokemon Go event was it last year, mm. I think it might have been, or was it uh, maybe start of this year that really failed miserably because they had underestimated just the 
the sheer load on right. networks when you had all of these Pokemon Go players in the one place trying to play no. at the same time. And of course, without network con- connectivity, that game obviously uh, is not very entertaining. Mm. And so uh, everybody turning up with the intention to play the game and then the network just not being able to cope, uh, sort of keeping in mind the demands on network when you have a lot of people mm. in the one place is, is definitely an interesting aspect of uh, modern telecommunications isn't it mm. but that aside the the phenomenon that you describe with the the sunlight coming or the, the eclipse light coming in between leaves and forming crescent shapes mm. listeners may be aware of a, a really fairly famous science youtube channel called smarter every day ah uh, yes destin is the guy's name yep. and he did uh, uh yeah i really like his videos I, I mean they're they're fantastic and obviously uh, he is that famous for a very good reason and if anything, just his sheer enthusiasm for what he does yes. and his just love of science and scientific phenomena is, is uh, really, even if you're not into that or you don't find science that interesting, it's, it's, really, it's really fun to watch because he's just so happy about it all. But he did uh, a really interesting episode on um, some of the, the interesting phenomena surrounding eclipse and what happens before, during and after. Uh, and I believe he's probably got a number of excellent... Uh, videos up mm. uh, from the eclipse itself so sure he does. worth going yeah. to have a look at smart every day yeah just the uh, uh phenomena of light is something that I, I tend to notice a lot and uh one interesting thing i noticed about being this far north in the world is that in the winter as is well known obviously the sun here in sweden will come up at about nine thirty or so mm. and it will just sort of hang low in the sky uh until about three o'clock at which time uh, it, it becomes dark. Right. And before I came to Sweden, Swedish people were all telling me, you know, you know, the winter you'll find the winter so depressing and dark and gloomy. Mm. It's interesting that, like for me myself, it, it's like a, a long twilight during the day, mm. and it, the, the sun is always very low when it's up. So the shadows are very, very long, and the color of the everything sort of becomes very yellow for the whole day. Mm. And then once the sun goes down at three o'clock or so, then everything's sort of very, very blue. It's, it's kind of like a dream. You know, you have uh, these two colors of the yellow and blue. Mm. And in the, around Christmas time, Swedish people put up these uh, candles in their windows as a sort of a tradition for Christmas here. Mm. So you have, when you look around, it's like everything's blue except for these point yellow lights here and there. Mm. And then it comes to the morning and the sun sort of lazily comes up, hangs around over the horizon for a bit and then goes back down. Mm. And sort of for a moment, the whole world becomes this sort of radiant glowing yellow and then back to this deep sort of misty blue again. It's pretty evocative, I have to say. Yeah. I can definitely see how some people may find it very depressing and, you know, maybe ask me in a few years and I might, I might be... Uh, finding it depressing too. But uh, as somebody who comes from Australia, where the light is very harsh, mm-hmm. that there is no ambiguity about light at all in Australia. It's, it's just really clear and really, really bright. Mm. And the sky is so intensely blue when it's fine in Australia, mm. right from the horizon. Like in Japan, if you look up on a fine day, it's blue. But as you trace your eyes down towards the horizon, it gets gradually more white. Right. Whereas in Australia, as you... It's up is blue and then on the horizon is exactly the same color. <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know, the, the skybox in a game and somebody had no time to put any gradients in there. So it's just a, a one single color. <laughs> and that, that makes things look generally kind of bluish mm. in Australia. Mm. 
And I really notice that whenever I go back there, you know, you get off the airplane, get out of the airport, out of the, you know, the, the windows of the airport and get outside. And all of a sudden, like everything looks kind of bluish. Mm. So yeah, interesting. Just the, your recount of the interesting phenomena with the light, the eclipse light coming through the leaves just reminded me of how interesting light is and how, uh, you know, amazing it is that we all share the same reality and we're all seeing the same things, but in different countries and different locations, you know, light is very, very much physics. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's quite interesting that eclipses themselves, even total eclipses, are actually fairly common. They, you think of them as quite a rare event, mm. but they happen every couple of years. But where they happen, they happen in a limited range of locations across the earth right and often that's just in the middle of the ocean that nobody is <laughs> so you know <laughs> an eclipse happening sort of in in your country or where you happen to be is quite a big event because it's that it's mm. quite rare that it will be exactly there and for it to cross the entire of the american you know united states from west coast all the way across to the east is is really quite rare. I think the last mm. time that happened was in the late 70s, maybe. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it was, oh, it was great. It was an amazing. Mm. Fantastic. I feel like going off to Smarter Every Day and having a look to see what videos he posted from the eclipse now. Oh, I'm sure there'll be some good ones. Everyone will have been putting up a load of those. Just near me recently, this new Amazon bookshop has opened. Have you heard of these? What's that about? They're, so, you know, Amazon, the the website, which originally sold, is still mainly a bookseller, but they also sell lots of other things now. Yes, Danny, I know Amazon. Yes. <laughs> they have started opening a series of physical bookshops. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? It's interestingly sort of come full circle. So they... Yeah. And, and it's a very sort of... So they, they opened the first one in Seattle, which is where they're based. Mm. And I think a couple have been sort of opening over the last couple of months. But they opened one near where I live, just it opened uh, yesterday or the day before i think thursday it opened and so i went in to have a look uh, and it's interesting it's very much like a traditional bookshop it's like waterstones that i used to go to in england and they have books on shelves they're mostly just selling books it's very much going back to their roots as a booksellers and not trying to sell you know everything like the website kind of does now they do have some board games and some vinyls and things, but it's mainly books. But uh, well, one interesting thing is all their books have the front covers facing outward. Oh. So they don't have books with where you just see the spines. They put all the front covers facing outwards. And then they do one thing that differentiates themselves from a normal bookshop is that they have some categories that a normal bookshop might not have. Mm. So, for example, they had a section of the bookshelf of highly rated books. And it was the books that on Amazon, through their review system, have received 4.8 stars and above. Oh, I see. And they had another section, which is an interesting one. They've got a page turners section. And the books on that shelf are books that people who've bought them on a Kindle have finished reading within three days. Oh, wow. Because obviously, you know, it's Amazon. They have this data, right? They, when you read a book on mm. Kindle, you may or may not be concerned about the privacy implica implications of this, but they know 
what page you're on, when. They use that so if you've got multiple devices, you can synchronize it. So it's a useful feature. Right. But as a result of that, obviously, they can see, well, all these people bought you know, the DaVinci code or whatever it may be, and they finished it within three days. Mm. And so this is obviously the sort of book that you can't put down. And they, they call that page turners. Another, another section they had was popular books in this area. So they've, you know, people who've bought either through the physical, you know, through Amazon buying physical books or on their Kindle, Mm. people who are registered as living in this area, a lot of them have bought, for example, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Mm. And so that's, so it's a kind of localized, it's not just popular books, bestsellers sort of in the country, but it's bestsellers for the people who live in your area, which is an interesting sort of an interesting piece of data that they that they can also take advantage of. That's a really interesting use of their data, isn't it, really? When you I mean it's one thing to have those categories available on their website. Right. But if you walked into a shop, a bookshop, and you saw those categories, you know, that that's pretty neat. It's it's a nice twist on because bookshops have those sorts of things, right? They have bestsellers sections and they have like staff picks and things like that. Mm. So it's a similar sort of idea, but it's just a, a kind of twist that you know, Amazon can do that a traditional bookseller can't. The other thing that traditional booksellers often do is for just a few of their books, they will have staff who work in that bookshop who have read that book might write a little review. You'll sometimes see in a bookshop, they'll have a little card in front of some of the books saying, you know, I read this book and it was really interesting and he explores this and that. Yeah. In this Amazon bookshop, they've got that for pretty much every book. But it's a customer review. It's one of the reviews they've taken from the website that customers have left on the website. So they don't have to have staff try and sit and write reviews of every single book. Oh, I see. They've got a whole bank of reviews. <laughs> mm. And so they've put they put a customer, they put like an extract from one of the reviews. And then they also put the star rating and the number of reviews at the time that they printed out this label, mm. I, I guess. Which is sort of, that means that they can have a review for every single book, which is good, obviously. It does slightly take away from the personal touch that I think if you go into bookshop and they've got the staff have written a review, mm. there's something I quite like about that. Like there's no real reason that I should trust the staff in my local bookshop more than, you know, random person on the internet who leaves a review. Right. But there's something nice about thinking one of these people that is serving me now has read this book and that person who I can look in the face and having a conversation with has thought this about this book. Mm. And I don't know, I, I kind of like that personal touch. And I do think you you lose that a little bit. But it is, you know, yeah. If it, it, this is Amazon being Amazon, I think. This is the right thing for them to do. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's an, it's an interesting use of uh, data. I mean, it's highly irrelevant to me because I don't need to buy any books anymore. But, right, because you've <laughs> because yes, you've already got the Silmarillion. Yeah. That's right. As avid listeners, listeners will know if they recall episode... Uh, yes, I think it was three or four. Yeah, not uh, bookstores are not too useful for me unless there's new editions coming out. But that's very interesting nonetheless. I agree, though, that... Um, the opinion of some person that I, some random person that I don't know is uh, probably in, in the case of a physical bookshop, you know, you'd like to think that the, the staff who work there are mm. somewhat familiar with 
you know, the, the goods that they sell, there's sort of like a, a nice editorial feeling about the fact that a staff member has recommended this you sort of think that, well, you know, it must be good then. Mm, that's true. Uh, and that is actually another thing that I felt with it is that one of the advantages of Amazon for me, Amazon the website, is that I can get some very obscure books mm. quite easily, right? I can search for pretty much any book and they'll have it and they can post it to me. Yeah. But obviously this being a physical store, it doesn't have that property. They've got to choose some set of books that they're going to offer in this store. Right. And because they've taken this kind of algorithmic approach where they're taking this interesting data and using it in interesting ways, it does tend towards, I think, quite well-known books. Right, right. And, and bestsellers and things like that. Mm. And there is something to be said for, like, an independent bookshop or even a chain, but a chain where the staff are given choice over which books they get in. Right. That you might come across a book that you would never have otherwise heard of, mm. but because a member of staff in this bookshop happened to have read this book themselves and thought that it's good and worth having in their bookshop, they've decided to get it in. Right, right. That is something that I think individual, individually owned, independently owned bookshops or smaller bookshops can still offer mm. that these Amazon physical books, bookstores, I'm not sure that they do. They, I think they're great for that. Like, I'm definitely going to go here next time I have to buy a birthday present for somebody or a Christmas present or something, because it's really good to sort of browse around a set of books that are popular and there might be something interesting. But if I want to get an experience that I can't get from the website and I can't get from just a general like Barnes and Noble chain or whatever, mm. I think these, these independent book booksellers that have slightly more quirky books, mm. I think there there is still value in those. And I don't think this Amazon bookshop really attacks that so much. Yeah, I mean, it's basically professional cura curation right. versus popular curation. And I mean, I, I suppose that the, the Amazon system could be somehow bent and flexed to give you more eclectic kinds of selections but yeah i mean you can't beat if, if that's what they want to do i mean they, they could have mm. a uh, I, I wonder on what data they would base this they could have a set like they've had popular in this area they could have a sort of mm. eclectic <laughs> bookshelf which picks books that are that are less popular but very highly rated for example mm. or right, right. that have uh, another Oh, another section that they had, actually, is, you know, on Amazon, when you're looking at a book, you'll often see underneath it, you'll see, if you like this, you might like this. Yeah. And they've got other suggestions of similar sort of books. Yeah. They had a shelf, a section for that. So they had, if you like this book, and then they had like three other books that bore some relation to that first book. Okay. Yeah, maybe... Uh... Maybe I should pay them a visit. Well, I'm not sure that... <laughs> if you like the similar... Uh, yes, well, yeah. <laughs> yes, maybe you could... They, well, they had Baron and Luthien. Oh, yeah. They had, yeah, I, I had a flick through that. Didn't really have time to read it, so... Yeah, I have to, I have to get that, don't I? I should get it, because that's, that's, that's part of the Silmarillion, so that's that right, counts. that counts. That's, that's like drilling into the Silmarillion fervor, almost. <laughs> it is... A, a, I think it is the same story. It's a retelling in more detail of that story rather than around the story or whatever. Right. So, yeah. But I couldn't get, for example, I, I got 
a little birthday present for myself mm. because it's it's my birthday tomorrow as we record. See, I knew that. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> happy birthday, Danny. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank I mean, you very much. So you got a special book for yourself. So I got I got off Amazon before this Amazon bookshop opened. I got possibly the nerdiest book I have ever bought. Really? Is it what uh, functional programming for dummies? No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it is Hareos Poter Kaihetu Filosofu Litos, which apologies to any ancient Greek listeners to the podcast for my <laughs> accent, but there's probably no danger of those. It's the first Harry Potter book translated into ancient Greek. I see. <laughs> that is an example of the sort of book that is not stocked at the Amazon bookshop. <laughs> no, right. Because <laughs> it, right. it is a little bit obscure. But that is, yes, that is my current, as I mentioned in, in a previous episode, my big hobby at the moment is studying ancient Greek. Mm. And I don't think we've got time to talk about it this time, but I think we should do an episode on not on that specifically because i don't think anybody cares about ancient greek but on language learning in general because you've i know you're quite talented in that regard you speak a couple of languages other than english uh, yeah. uh including japanese which i also speak that's a good idea to save that topic for another time because um i was an english teacher and language education consultant for oh yes of course years. so you're actually so, a professional well i used to be and i also i i took one very extreme approach when I was learning Japanese and I'm taking a very, very different approach with this ancient Greek now. So I, I think it'd be interesting to talk and I'm interested to hear your approach as well because I think we have quite different backgrounds when it comes to language. So we should definitely have, we might have a, la a language special. Sounds great. In, in the future. If you're listening and you have things that have worked really well for you in learning a language or haven't worked well for you or uh, any tips or interesting websites or tools or things, then uh, definitely... Um, we, we can do preemptive feedback if you uh, let us know in the next uh, few weeks, then it'll be great to include that in the episode too. 